Welcome to the Script and Style Show, the web show where we talk about web development with the people that make it happen. Today's episode is brought to you by TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring. Know when errors hit your website with the context to find and fix bugs fast with TrackJS. Start your free trial today at trackjs.com. Welcome to the Script and Style Show, everyone. I'm Todd Gardner from TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring. And my co-host, David Walsh, creator of the popular blog, davidwalsh.name. How's it going today, David? Good, how are you? I'm good. I, I had a great weekend sitting on my butt playing video games. It was refreshing. <laughs> Is, did it, it take you back to those like teenage years before you could get a job, but when you were old enough to remember the video games? It did, it did. Like we talked on the show before about how, you know, sometimes vi- I spend the day playing video games and I just feel terrible about myself. I feel like I, you know, wasted so much time. But for whatever reason, this game that I was playing, which is called The Untitled Goose Game, just made me happy. It, like, it was silly. Like, I had no qualm. It never became a chore, that something I had to, like, get done with. It was just short and fun, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So... First of all, obviously having untitled in the name of a game sounds weird. It does. I don't but think a, they put a lot of thought into it. A goose it. game sounds weird too. So what's like what is the base what's going on here? Okay, so you are an annoying goose. All you can do is like walk or like sneak around and honk at people. That's all that's and like you can like grab things. Uh, and so you walk around this fictional town annoying people. And you have like this checklist of like, here's all the ways that you can annoy people. And then there's like secret ways that you can annoy people as well. And you work your way through the town, like stealing the gardener's keys and locking him out of his fence, his fenced garden, or stealing a little boy's plane and making him buy it again from the toy store. Like there's all kinds of like little, little fun things. There's just like, oh, yeah, this is this is kind of fun just to be a jerk and and hang out and like there's no violence. There's no like my wife was like, why don't they just kill the goose or why don't you just kill that guy? I'm like, you can't do that because you're a goose. You're just a goose. But First it was all, fun. It was a yeah, good. This, I highly this, recommend. This game sounds bizarre, but it sounds perfect for an introvert, right? An introvert who likes to sort of prank people. Because, I mean, you could do this in real life, yeah. but that requires leaving the house, interacting with people. But here you can just sit on your couch and, like, achieve the exact same things. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I think it was grand fun. I'm going to venture out that Nintendo didn't publish this game. No, it's from, like, this indie game studio. I think it's Australian because they kept saying, like, Victoria Studios or something like that. And so... I, I don't know. I didn't actually look that up, but it seemed like it might have been Australian to me. Awesome. Cool. I'm glad you had fun. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get into our topic today, the other thing that kind of caught my eye this weekend was a bit of news about Chef. Did you see this? I saw tweets mentioned, but I don't know anything about it. So why don't you enlighten me and everybody else? All right. So here, here's how this goes down. All right. So Chef is a like a DevOps infrastructure automation tool. It's really popular in the Ruby space. Uh, it's really popular in a lot of spaces, but like the core of its community is in is in Ruby, as far as I understand. 
So a lot and, of our a lot of our listeners are in the JavaScript node world. So is there an equivalent? Um, I don't I don't know that there's an equivalent. Okay. Uh, so essentially, what Chef lets you do is it lets you like describe what this server is going to do and like what it's going to have on it, and then you run basically uh, you run a script and it like sets up a server to do what you think it's going to do. So like it'd be similar to Ansible, I think. Okay. Sure. Yep. I'm with you. Okay. So Chef is a, a, a big company uh, as well as as a project. And the company like sells, you know, licenses or support or training or stuff. And somewhere along the line, uh, they signed a deal with uh, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency of the United States, which has been in some hot water uh, recently because they are doing terrible things at the border and like locking people up and generally being huge dickheads. Yep. Um, and so one of the people who owns uh, a pretty important piece of open source uh, inside the chef, to eat chef ecosystem decided that, you know what, this was like a moral imperative. He did not want his code uh, supporting any of this. And so he yanked uh, a, a core package, I guess, uh, of chef uh, off of uh, the Ruby like gem repository, which is like yanking it off NPM. Right, like and, left, left pad did that. Yeah, a couple it's, of years it's, ago. it's like exactly like left pad, <laughs> as far as I as far as I know. Uh, just pulled this thing off, and then tons of Chef customers were affected because all of a sudden this thing was just gone. Um, and then the CEO of, of Chef said that like uh, this, like he agreed, but he wasn't going to you know remove the deal because you have to do business to do business, and it just kind of like danced around the issue. And then Chef like basically took a copy of the open source uh, package that had been dis disappeared and just republished it under their own name. Like kind of erased the dude from, from the package, uh, which got them into another round of trouble because they basically just like stole his copyright on, on everything. Um, and so, yeah, this is just a fun little piece of drama. Now I think, I think they backed off. I think chef actually has like lost in, uh, in face of like this public outcry, because they said that they are going to donate all of the money from the deal to like uh, immigration charities or something like that, and they are canceling the renewal. So like they're not going to do future deals, but they didn't back out of the current deal. So I think this is probably still ongoing. Well, first of all, kudos to the creator of the code for doing what he did. Um, any any time that you believe in a certain thing and you feel like whoever's using it is doing something wrong, I I think it's perfectly fine to do it, even knowing that it's going to hose a bunch of other people, right? Um, because in doing so, especially in a case with ICE, which um, I mean I don't have to describe what's going on there, but I think that most people would sort of understand. Um, in the second that he pulled it, I knew that that the company would just take it and put it right back, uh, their name or not. So it's an interesting story. Kudos to that person. Um, for me, donating the money to whatever is re really not anything special. Um, yeah. 
it's it's a situation that they shouldn't have put themselves in in the first place um especially when there's you're doing business with the devil a little bit right that for me i don't yeah i don't agree with that at all so the kind of make a, a meta level above this is like immaterial of of the specific you know what this guy felt and and ice and chef and whatever the fact that like in in this ecosystem that an author uh, unilaterally can pull a package and just have it disappear seems not great for like reliability. It's like left pad, right? It's like after that happened, I think what NPM changed that you can't just make something completely go away, right? Except for employees. Um, let's see. So how do you how do you, how do you deal with that? Like how do you say I'm empowering like the author to make moral decisions, but uh, as a as a as a consumer or whatever, I need to be able to rely on the gem store. I don't know what it's actually called. <laughs> the, the 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 gem, gem store. <laughs> the gem repository. <laughs> or NPM, I need to be able to rely on it that says, I'm depending on package foo, package foo has to be there. And if there's a risk that the author of package foo will discover something amoral is happening with this and just delete it, then I can't really count on NPM or the gem store or any of them anymore, right? Yeah, I mean, like, unless, unless, chef implements something like uh you know bleep your license we don't care if it's up here it stays up here you can't do anything about it yeah. and you shouldn't expect that right like we're all living on borrowed code right now and that's sort of one of that's like one of the underlying um dark realities that we're living with for example let's say that you go to npm and find a package to help you do um, open auth login or something. Very easily in there, someone could hide a snippet of code that says, you know, store this, store the username, store the store anything, and we wouldn't be all the greater because we just went uh, npm install. You know, like that's where we are. And so, what do you do with that? You make it such that you aren't like re I guess rebuilding dependencies every time, like you pull it down and it becomes part of your project. Like the code becomes part of your project. Oh, but, so do you want to, you want to check in at node modules? Do you check in? It's, it's, a, it's a great way to prevent this problem. I don't I mean, do that. It. That's totally what, I mean, in, uh, in .NET, that's totally what I would do. Like before NPM kind of took off, I considered it to be, best practice to i would take all of the modules that my code depended on and i would check in the binaries into source so that like that's just everybody could pull it and everybody would get the same output it like it did not matter about some external thing and i actually was very resistant on on using npm for a long time because of this issue because i was like i don't want to trust some third party to make sure my build works um 100%. Eventually, I just gave in, and it's like, well, that's how the modern web works. But it doesn't mean it's right. 
No, I mean, okay, let's say that you want to start a business, like you're starting a bakery and your friend loans you, you know, an oven or whatever you need to get it going, you know, and things start going well. And obviously you need this thing, but there's a falling out between the two of you. And he like backs up to your bakery with a big truck looking for his oven back, you know, like, yeah, it is. He can do yeah. with it what he wants, right? And that's Why sort of my oven. I'm yanking it out of your bakery, right? And I think it plays into the greater issue on the internet where people expect everything for free. You know, yeah. I should be able to read articles for free. I should be able to download this for free. Um, that's sort of extended into open source and code, right? Where there are these sort of invisible lines, but in this case, the author of this code made it a wall and yeah. people got shut out yeah. and there's you can't do anything about that you know yeah anyway i think we've talked about that enough let's move on to our main topic of the day conference speaking yeah so in, in the past we've we've talked about going to conferences and being successful because most people go to conferences they don't necessarily speak but i have the great privilege to have a podcast with somebody that is what I would consider sort of a prolific speaker, right? You, you're not just doing like local meetup things. Um, you're, tra you're literally traveling around the world talking about stuff and you've even put on a few um, events of your own. Yep. So someone like myself who seldom speaks and doesn't necessarily enjoy it slash is somewhat terrified of it sometimes, maybe you can help me and the people that are listening to get into sort of a, a speaking role, get into a conference and get that ball rolling in their career. So how does that sound? Yes, that sounds good. I have spent a lot of time uh, thinking about public speaking, planning public speaking, executing public speaking, and trying to figure out why and how to do this effectively. And I'm, I'm excited to talk about this. Awesome, cool. So let's start from the from the very beginning. Um, not the conference talk itself, not even the conference, but getting to the point where you feel like you have enough expertise or just an idea to want to give a talk on a specific topic. So how do you pick the right topic? How do you pick the right event? Mm. Well, so. I think there's another question kind of mixed in there that is almost more important before topic and event, which is what do you want to get out of public speaking? Because it's it's a pretty significant time commitment that you're going to put into it to do this well. Um, and you need to kind of know what do you want to get out of it? Uh, because everybody is, is getting something out of it, uh, which is kind of like the secret truth of like software conferences is nobody's just doing this completely out of the kindness of their hearts. Everybody's getting something from it. You're sure. getting, you are marketing something. You're building your own brand. You are stroking your own ego. You want to travel to places. You uh, want to hang out with your friends who happen to be also do it. Like everybody is like, there's a reason why you're doing it. And so you need to kind of understand what that reason is because it's going to drive everything else. So for example, like you say you're early in your career and, and you, you just want to, you want to grow. You want to become a, a senior developer. You want to be respected in your community and, and, and you want to like 
get better gigs and demand a higher price and work on cooler projects or whatever subset of those tickles your fancy. Well, that's going to kind of drive what kind of things you should speak about and where you should speak about them in order to further those goals. Whereas if you are, say, like, a, like an evangelist and you're like a dev advocate kind of thing, uh, and it's your uh, job to kind of promote a certain point of view or a certain set of technologies, there's a different reason behind why you're doing it. You're probably employed to do it. You're probably like have certain goals like of how many conferences you need to submit to. And uh, there's probably a certain kind of conference that's going to be better for you than others. Uh, and so I think it's important to kind of have that conversation with yourself about not, not just, I think I should do public speaking, but why do you want to do it and what do you want to get out of it? That's a really good point. The why is really interesting. Um, so let's say that you you understand your why, whether you're a dev advocate or just someone trying to build build themselves up in their career. Um, you pick a topic that you think is interesting, that you know something about, that, or maybe it's just like a product or service that you're trying to push. Talk me through going from the I want to do this to submitting a proposal. Sure. So this is uh, every, like, there's a lot of people who have different kind of ideas on how they do this, uh, but I can only share mine and, and what has worked for me. So I'll start from a place of like, you understand why you want to do something. And then once you understand why, uh, you can start thinking about topics. Now, the topic that you want to speak on should, you know, kind of reinforce why you're doing this. So it should promote your point of view or what you want to be seen as an expert on. Or if you're really just going for, you know, the opportunity to go and speak and be associated with the people who are there, then you just speak on something that you know. Um, uh, but you don't necessarily have to speak on things that you are already an expert on, but something that you really want to learn and you want to present a case study of how you learned it and what you did with it. That is a, a perfectly acceptable talk. Um, now, what I will typically do is I'll put together a list of like maybe five to 10 ideas of like, oh, this would be kind of a cool thing to speak about. I think I could talk for an hour about this. I think I could tell some stories. And I'll basically just create like a Google Doc with five ideas. And I'll develop five, those five to 10 ideas and I'll kind of write a draft title and uh, and, and maybe like a, a, an abstract. And there's a, like a whole set of conversations in there about how to write a title in an abstract, uh, which we can talk about if you'd like. Uh, but I'll basically try and develop um, five to 10 ads for an idea, which is kind of like what that pitch is, that title abstract is like an ad for a talk. And then I'll reach out to some friends and try and get some reviews. I'll, I'll try and get like another set of eyes on everything. So. Uh, I've occasionally just put open calls for that on Twitter. I've asked specific people, I've asked other speakers to say, hey, look at these talk ideas. Tell me, what does this mean to you? Does this seem interesting to you? What's confusing? And I'll get, and, and so I'll refine those ideas. And then once I have those, those ideas, and maybe I've edited it down, maybe I'm only at, at like three to five now, because um, I, I ditched the ones that I thought were unworkable. Uh, I'll have I have a list of conferences that I'll I'll look for. And so the what conferences is driven by 
again, why I'm doing it and then what talk am I putting together? Because uh, there's a lot of different conferences that target a lot of different groups that exist. There are so many software conferences today that it can be hard to understand the differences between them. But so um, there's a couple of different facets of a conference. One is um, kind of a, a, a scale of corporate to community. And so some conferences are like very much community driven to the point where like they don't have any money, everything is free, it's mainly for local people. The only kind of sponsors that show up might be like recruiters kind of thing. Sure. Two on the other side are super corporate where there's usually like big sponsors and a big expo booth and people pay a lot of money to go to it and money is the primary driving factor behind the whole thing. And then there's all kinds of little things in between. Uh, there's all kinds of conferences that fall somewhere in between. that. Uh, and then there's another kind of scale of uh, uh, broad versus niche, right? So like you could have a very general kind of general software development conference that could either be about like meta concepts or it could be about a specific ecosystem like uh, a Java conference or a Ruby conference or a JavaScript conference. And then you could get even more specific where it's only about like one tool within that ecosystem, where it's like, it's React Rally, it's, right. it's VS Code. It's about like one tiny little thing. Um, and so understanding what you wanna be, uh, where you wanna go is kind of a factor of what you wanna do. So like, if you're just trying to, uh, if you're trying to build your own personal brand and get like, uh, just network with other people and uh, be seen as an expert in, in a field, you can go to a, uh, a larger community event for whatever niche that you want to focus on. And that's great. But if you're going to that group with the intention of being an evangelist and you wanna like sell to that group, that might not be very good because they're not really approaching it from a point of, they have money and they're looking to spend it. Like right. then, then you're not you're not really doing anybody your good because you're you're talking about something that isn't relevant to their interests. Uh, and then so each of these kind of uh, groups has their own kind of culture within it. So like uh, some ecosystems um, are very open source driven, as in if you're not talking about an open source set of technologies you um, you're kind of working uphill like Microsoft going to an open source group like even though they're making headway in that direction they're kind of there's a strong headwind for them to to go to that uh, whereas if you go to a uh, a Microsoft centric conference those people are already prepared to have to pay for their developer tools sure because it's what the ecosystem is based around and so they're expecting a commercial transaction and so it's fine uh and so that's that's some of the the factors that go into deciding where you want to go so what do you need what do you need to include in a typical proposal these days so for example when uh, well, the, the last time that i spoke it was like give me a title give me one or two paragraphs about what you're going to talk about but it seems to me that the, the process is a little bit more difficult these days. Yeah, so every every uh, conference is a little bit different set of things that they ask for you, ask 
of you. Uh, the, the most general three pieces of information is you need a title, an abstract, and a bio. Uh, the title is, you know, 10 <clears throat> words or less, uh, and it is what your talk is going to be. And it is probably the most important bit of all of them because you need to capture people's attention. Uh, in, uh, in the selection committee, oftentimes um, the people who are selecting for a conference are you know just a handful of people and they have to review hundreds of talks and they're not really getting paid to do it, S especially for community-based events, right? Mm. Sometimes for corporate events, like there's like somebody's job to review them, but for a community event, they probably just ask people in the community to like donate some of their free time. And so honestly, they're not reading every every submission. Like you have to capture attention in the title right there. So if you, if you use a boring title of like top 10 reasons to use JavaScript, well, I mean, unless they didn't get any other people who wanted to talk about JavaScript and they think that's important, uh, you're probably not even going to get anything else of your submission read because it's just boring. It's like you didn't, there's nothing exciting and I don't understand anything about what your talk is really going to be. Um, so I usually like doing something kind of uh, almost like a joke, like right in the title. Uh, like uh, one of the talks I was recently doing was build versus buy software systems at Jurassic Park. Uh, right. Like, oh, that's kind of fun. like, oh, build versus buy. That's dumb. Oh, Jurassic Park. That's kind of fun. I want to read about what it was going to do with that. And so it's that like uh, kind of interest spark that gets gets you to the next level. So then you get like um, five to eight paragraphs for like your description. Now, uh, this is largely for the selection committee. Uh, this is where you like articulate your idea. You need to clearly describe the problem that your audience has, how you intend to solve it, some examples of what they're going to learn, why you're qualified to speak on it, and like a, finally a call to action. And so it's like copyright. It's like writing a well-crafted email or a marketing page or something like that. Uh, you need, that's what it's for. But really, the selection committee is much more likely to read that than the attendee. Right. Mo most attendees don't read them. They will select what talks they go to purely based on titles. Title, right. OK, cool. So let's say you've put together this proposal, and the best slash worst thing in the world happens, and you get selected to give this talk. Now for me, this would be the worst part because from the time I was selected to the actual talk, I would be super anxious. I'd be nervous. I'd be, um, I'd probably try and over prepare. How do you sort of deal with the time between being selected? Because it doesn't sound like you've put together the talk yeah, yet. I so, okay. So, <laughs> In between the the time you're selected and like time to leave, how do you how do you put it? First of all, how do you deal with like the anxiety, if you have any, leading up to this new responsibility that you have? And then how do you sort of dive right into putting your talk together? Sure. Um, well, so the first uh, the first bit is so you got that acceptance email. Great. Uh, now. 
what my strategy has typically been is, is from my proposals that I have crafted, I'll submit them to like a bunch of conferences and see which come back with acceptance. Now, just because you are accepted doesn't mean a commitment has been made yet. So like, honestly, if you got accepted for a conference that's like, ah, uh, yeah, that was kind of like my third choice or my fifth choice or whatever, you can just say no. Like you can say, ah, oh, sorry, it didn't, it didn't work out, whatever. So you don't have to make that commitment yet. If you get that email and you are overcome with waves of dread, um, you can just say, you know what? I don't think this was a good fit. Let's, let's just not do that. But assuming, assuming that you still think it's a good idea uh, and you're still ready to do it, now's the time when you start developing the talk. Um, and I, at this level, I usually don't have a lot of anxiety yet. Um, but uh, you do need to plan, you know, kind of look at your schedule between now and when the conference happens and kind of set aside, I would say 40 to 80 hours to build your talk. Oh, wow. Uh, to, to build it effectively. I mean, unless it's just a topic that you just know down and you presented before and you have a lot of base material to work from, I would say if you're starting from nothing, you need 80 hours to like put together a demo site and figuring out like, what points you want to make. And I think that telling stories is a big part of a successful talk. And like, so putting a story arc into your talk, it takes some time to develop it. Now, if you got accepted to a big conference and you're like a little worried about how it's going to be received, uh, I might try and get the same talk in at a user group uh, somewhere between that time so that you can have a level of rehearsal. That's a good so idea. Go like, just get on somebody's uh, schedule. And so like, a month before you're going to present it at the JavaScript user group of whatever, and and just so you have a chance to to go and and do it. Um, as you get as you get closer to the to the date, uh, that anxiety will build, and it'll build faster if you haven't started your talk. <laughs> so right. like the farther along that you can have like some story ready and having been on stage once, the better it's going to be. Uh, that said, anxiety is totally normal. This is a thing that everybody gets. Um, Alcohol helps. Come on. <laughs> I, I, well, no, yeah, no, it's, like it's when I better first, to have it in the preparation when I first than right before speak, giving. You don't yeah. want to do the alcohol when right I, before giving. When I speech, first, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like when I first started speaking, I had a lot of stage anxiety, and so like I did bring um, a flask to conferences, and I would take a couple of hits of like a bourbon, uh, maybe 20 minutes before I was supposed to go on stage. And it would just like, it's not getting you drunk. It's just like chilling you out. Calm and like, I don't, have to do, I don't have to do it anymore, but I totally did it for a number of years and it was <clears throat> remarkably effective. I, I know my takeaway from this episode already. This is great. <laughs> so what are, what are some of the things that you've done right and done wrong in preparing for giving a talk? Mm. So I would say the biggest thing that to do right is, uh, and let me do the wrong first. So the, if the biggest thing to do wrong is to assume that you are a pro going in and that like <laughs> you don't need any prep time, you know, you, clearly, David knows the Firefox dev tools inside and out. He has all the material to do this. He doesn't need to do any prep work. And so like the day before his talk in his hotel room, he's just going to whip something together and get up on stage and do it. That 
is a terrible, terrible idea. And I've seen speakers who gloat about that. And you know what? They're not very good speakers. Like they're just, they're not that good. Because you can tell that they didn't put a lot of thought and time into like telling a story. And so they might deliver the factual information that you need, but it's not an entertaining time. It's kind of a boring session. It's like, eh, I could have got this on a blog post that so would have been better. Right. <laughs> um, to be effective, even if you know it, you need to do some storytelling. Like take your idea and then like craft a story around it. You're gonna tell a story about how this company or this person solved this problem with this tool and here's how it was better for it and here's some things you can take away from that experience. And like, give me something that I can become emotionally invested in. Tell me some, some like make me entertained because if I'm not entertained, nobody's gonna listen to you. Like nobody can go into like an hour long session of dry factual information and pay attention. Very few people, anyway. Like, if you're just delivering the details, everybody's gonna check out and like open up their phones and check email on their laptop and not really listen to you. If you can tell a story, if people are like, they want to know what happens next, they want to know like, ooh, how did you get by this? Oh, and they're, they will like laugh at your jokes, they will be paying attention, and then subtly you'll teach them something without them even realizing it. Absolutely. And, and the other thing to remember is that um, you mentioned if you just go up with the details, like the details change, APIs change, right? And so you could be delivering something that isn't relevant three months from now because you just stuck to those, like, those tiny details and facts. Whereas if you tell a story, the API could change, but you're still explaining to someone how they can accomplish what you're trying to get across. Absolutely. Now, so, so the, the worst mistake you can make is not preparing and not investing in, in the story of your talk. But the best thing you can do is once you've made that investment and you have something that people become emotionally invested in when they're talking, when you're speaking, don't just give that talk once. Don't be like, oh yeah, I spent all this time and then I went to this conference and then I gave it and it was great and now I'm moving on with my life. It's like, no, you just, you built a really valuable asset. You built something that is a talk that is entertaining to people and will teach them something. You should take that talk and submit it to all of the other conferences that you wanted to go to and the other user groups that you think you can go to and anything else that furthers your, your original goal. Because now you have, a much lower investment way to speak at a conference. Now you can pitch a talk and maybe like tweak it a little bit, but you don't need to spend those 80 hours building it. You can spend five hours tweaking it and then do it. That's really good. Reusing the the, the same um, material for back of for lack of better word is actually a really great way to be number one, an entertaining and effective speaker, and two, not put a load of pressure on yourself all the time to come up with something new. Yeah, so when you're when you're thinking about a talk, don't think of it like a blog post. Like you write a blog post, you wrote it once, you put it on your blog, you're not going to write the same blog post again. It's not that. It's a stand-up performance. And once you have your bit, once you have your material, 
the comedian will go around city to city every night doing the exact same bit with minor variations to like make it better along the way. Um, that's what you're doing. Like once you have a talk, you are a stand-up comedian. You will go around from conference to conference delivering the same thing and making it a little bit better because it's not the same content. Like nobody, like a lot of conferences record their video sessions and some people think like, oh, it's been recorded. I can't really do it again. Nobody watches the recordings. I've never seen like a conference recording that's gotten like, I mean, like there's, you know, really big ones from like really well-known people that were only given once, but like most conference sessions get like 50 views. Like nobody's really watching those. And you can go and do the same talk over and over again in different cities and nobody will have seen it. Okay, cool. So one minor detail before we move on to giving the actual conference talk. Um, are conferences paying speakers these days? Sometimes. Is, uh, it, is it just like flight and uh, hotel? Or what's, what's the landscape right now? It really depends on where you are in that ecosystem, right? So like community, uh, community to corporate and what kind of, um, how big it is and what ecosystem it plays in. So like sometimes there's, uh, you know, on super corporate events, sometimes they get even too corporate-y and they won't even pay for speakers because they're like, oh, the speakers are getting, you know, we'll give you a free ticket and that's all you're gonna get. And I think that's dumb and I don't, I've never spoken at one of those because of it. On the other side, there's like community events that literally have no budget. And so they don't really cover anything because they don't really have any budget, which I get it. But like at the same time, I can't take three days off of work and pay a thousand dollars to fly and stay for two nights and speak at your event. So I don't really do very many of those either. Um, unless they're like here in Minnesota, then I'll do them. Uh, there's kind of a middle tier of conferences where they're, they might be a little community, a little corporate, and they have a little bit of budget. And so it's super common for them to cover either just flight or just hotel or sometimes flight and hotel. Uh, it's rare for them to cover both in the United States for some reason. Uh, I actually find it's way more common for conferences in Europe to cover flight and hotel. Uh, which is why I typically had more luck submitting to European conferences than American conferences. Because oh, wow. I, I actually just can't take, um, it's just the, the opportunity cost of me doing a local conference is higher than me doing a European one. Because in both cases, I'm taking some time off of work for the travel and I just can't, you know, to go to Europe, they'll like pay for everything. And then, but to go to North Carolina, they're like, you gotta fly yourself here and we'll cover one night of your hotel and I'll need at least three for the travel dates to work out. And it's like, eh, it's I don't wanna do that. So it, it really depends. Most times when you're submitting to a conference, they will tell you what they will cover. Uh, sometimes there's a little unwritten rule of like, if you ask them, they will cover, uh, kind of depending on what session you submitted and how much they liked it. Like if they really liked your session, they might throw a little extra. It doesn't hurt to ask. Sure. I think like, of course there's the, the monetary costs and there's, you know, using vacation or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, being away from family is a big cost too. And I think that it's, yeah, absolutely. I think it, I think for me, it's really bizarre that a conference wouldn't 
at least cover your flight in hotel. Um, and I think that's a huge drawback for someone like myself with a young family, which adds more pressure to, you know, leaving. Absolutely. That, that what, they wouldn't do that. What ends up happening when a conference doesn't cover travel is it changes who speaks there. Right. Uh, so if a conference doesn't cover travel, there's only going to be two kinds of people who are there. There's going to be locals who are there because they believe in their community. And there's going to be a handful of people who float in on their own dime or on their corporate dime corporate who are, dime, right. who are uh, advocates, who are, who are, which is, I mean, they're there to sell you a point of view. They're, they're like there to advocate for their company and their set of things. They're, they're salespeople. Um, and so that's, that's fine. It's just, you can't like look at it and be like, oh yeah, we still get people who fly in even though we don't cover travel. I'm like, you do, but you're just getting salespeople. You're not getting people who are trying to promote like their open source project. You're not getting people who are small business. You're not getting people who are uh, trying to build their personal brand um, because you've priced all of those people out. So the only people who are left are people who are part of dev advocacy groups that have a conference travel budget. And have an agenda. Yeah. Um, it, it's like not hiring remote employees, right? It's You're not getting the best, you're getting the closest. Um, or yeah. people willing yeah. to move, which is completely fair, but that's tough. Okay, so you're at the conference now. You've got your talk together. How do you deal with the pre-talk nerves other than the flask? And then um, how do you break the ice? Because I feel like, um, you know, you mentioned you had a funny title. Um, how can you, within the first minute or two, whether it be via a slide or something that you say, how do you ease the tension? So I do a couple of things. Um, one that I've had a lot of success with, I, like I saw somebody else do it and I copied it. I don't recall who I saw do it though, um, but I've evolved it and it's worked very well, is I have a pre-roll deck. So I have uh, basically like 20 or 30 slides before my actual presentation that is just funny stuff. It's like, um, uh, it's jokes about the talk. It's like meta jokes jokes about the conference, like I kind of poke fun at the conference or I poke fun at a sponsor or I poke fun at somebody. This uh, is why I, they don't pay, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> the speakers are talking smack on stage. No, not like not like mean-spirited ones. Like, uh, I can't think of a good example right now. Um, so Sometimes I'll just take like funny stuff I found, like funny gifts I found on the internet or whatever. I'll say Todd's top 10 gifts of 2019 or whatever and i'll just do like a little countdown and it's largely stuff that you know there's that awkward period of like five minutes before your talk has started and some people are are there in the room and you're trying to figure out what to do with yourself because you don't want to start yet but right like, you want to make everybody feel welcome and so i have these this thing that i put up on the screen and it's already timed to five minutes so i start it five minutes before i'm ready to go on and it's something for people to watch people to interact with. And then I'm in the back of the room and kind of like welcoming people in and making small talk and stuff like that. And so then there's like a whole buildup of like, uh, like a ton, like timing is just getting faster and faster and faster up into showtime. And so like it builds a little bit of emotional tension before we start. So then when I start, um, 
getting up there, uh, I do try and uh, make it light in the first five minutes. So I'm trying to like describe the story. It's like there's the logistics of like, here's this talk, here's what we're gonna talk about today, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then I try and get into setting the background of the story and laying in at least one solid joke to get people engaged in me and engaged in what we're gonna talk about. And so that's how I try and like set that, that up when I'm building the talk. As far as anxiety around this time, uh, repetition is really important. So like if you didn't go to an open source or if you didn't go to a user group and this is your first time speaking, that's kind of bad. That's like the, that's the highest anxiety that you're gonna have because this is the first time that you're about to do something and you don't know how it's gonna go. So it's really important that you've rehearsed it. If for nothing else that you know what is about to happen, you know how the audience is about to react. You know what you are about to say. Because if you've just built the slides and you've never actually said it out loud, then a lot of that anxiety is just because like you don't know what you're about to do. But if you know what you're about to do, even, even if you've only done it to your bathroom mirror, you've done it once before. Make sure you've done the talk before. Which also is another reason why you should do your talks lots of times. Because I have a talk I've given 26 times. And when I go up on stage and do it, it's like, whatever, I've done this. I know exactly what people are going to laugh. I know exactly what questions they're going to have. And I know how it's going to go. And I'm not nervous about doing it at all. So speaking of, of being nervous, another thing that always made me nervous was trying to keep to time. Yeah. Um, that's not easy. So a lot of times they'll have a, like a clock in the background that, you know, that is sort of a countdown of how much time you have left or maybe a count up how, how long you've been going on. What are some of your tips for dealing with that time? Yeah. So typically I target to go under time uh, because I think that, uh, well, for an, I think an hour long talk or a 50 minute talk is generally just too long. Uh, most people don't actually want that. And so I'll typically tar if it's an hour long talk, I will target 45 minutes and then expect to like maybe ad hoc something in there if I feel like I need to go longer. If it's a 30 minute talk, well, that's kind of hard. You kind of, it's hard to do anything of substance in, in less than 30 minutes. Right. So that'll probably just be spot on. Um, as far as dealing with time, like if there's not a clock in the room, like a big countdown one, I have an app on my phone there's like lots of them to do that where you can basically just like show me a big countdown of however much time I have. So you have a quick visual all the time of like, here's where we are. And then to adjust to that, don't just rely on talking fast and talking slow because that basically, if you adjust your timing to hit, hit your total time, um, it's really obvious to the audience and it throws off your tempo. And so instead, I would say have one bonus section and one throwaway section. So like put together your talk and then look like you kind of break it down into natural like chunks of like, we're gonna talk about this thing and then we're gonna talk about this thing and then we're gonna talk about this thing. Have one of those things that you can just drop out of the story and doesn't, doesn't kill it. Like it's, it's maybe not totally necessary. It's great if you can talk about it, but you could leave it out. And be ready if you're running slow or if you're, if you're uh, going to run out of time that you just drop that section out of your talk altogether. And then the audience just never know, knew it was there. 
So do you and try and pin that section to the end of the talk? The last, uh, the last half, definitely. Okay. It should, it should be in the last half because the halfway point is a good time to make that decision. So you're at, you're at the halfway point. You're at, um, you're at 20 minutes of a 40 minute talk and uh, you are less than halfway through your content. That's the decision point that says, all right, that section is gonna, yeah, we're just gonna skip over that. And then, um, and then sometimes like if, depending on your tools, you can either just skip over it. Like if you're using like reveal, you can make that section as like a down arrow so that you can easily skip over it. If you're using PowerPoint or Keynote or whatever, I mean, you can just say, oh, we're just gonna skip over this section and just, and that's not that bad. Okay. And then on the, on the flip side, have a bonus section, right? Like have something that like, I don't think I'll have time for it, but in case things are going really fast, we, we bolt it on. How do you, how do you read the room during your talk? Because you, you've talked about like a, a bonus section and, um, can you structure your talk as such that if you feel like people might be getting bored, you can skip around? Or is that just something that you've invested so much and put so much thought into giving this talk ahead of time that yeah. you're just that confident that that's not going to happen? No, I don't think you're ever that confident that it's not going to happen. But um, I like my personal style is I'm not very good ad hoc. Like I, I'm, I'm not good that I can't just like bullshit a thing together um, to read the room and respond to it. Uh, I have a performance that I've like crafted and I'm ready to do that. Now I am reading the room. Like I am like looking and like, Oh, the audience is bored in this section or I, I lost, I lost a bunch of people when I said that or, or whatever. Um, and so when I, when I see those signals, I note them mentally and then I, I write them down after like after a talk, I have like some notes that I keep and I'll use that to adjust the talk for the next time I give it. Uh, and so I, like the feedback loop of coming in of like saying, oh, that section was weak for some reason, I need to like figure it out. Um, if you are good ad hoc and you can like do that on the fly, that's great. I definitely know some speakers who can do that. I personally can't. So I'm reading the room really just to, uh, refine my talk and understand what parts I'm getting right and what parts I'm getting wrong. Okay, so freestyling is tough, but the most terrifying thing to do on stage is, of course, a live demo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> have you done live demos before? And what tips would you have for someone that wanted to do one? Um, yes, I have done live demos before. Uh, it takes a lot of prep, like a lot of, like I said 40 to 80 hours, that's for a talk without a live demo. If you want like a live, live demo and you wanna be confident that it's gonna work every time, you're gonna need probably more. Um, if you wanna do a, a live demo of something that is dependent on things outside of your computer, uh, just don't. That's a like problem. If, if, you wanna, if you wanna do a live demo of something with like AWS, just don't. Um, record it. Like have the like I actually met many speakers who do this this thing where like they will have a video of the demo happening, um, and they put the video as a full screen video on a slide. It starts with them doing a transition, and they will pretend <laughs> to type and move their mouse around during the video so that you don't know it's a video. 
you just see them doing stuff and like the mouse is moving around and they're talking over it, blah, 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 blah. And it looks like a really compelling live demo. It was a video. It was just a video that they dramatized to make it engaging. And I think that's important because you can't just show them a video and be like, whatever. Uh, having like making it feel real is, is cool. Um, and it's way more reliable. Now, if you can have everything locally on your system and it just works, um, you can try a live demo. Uh, it can still blow up in your face. You get nervous, you leave a typo in. There's a lot that can go wrong. Um, I would say avoid it unless it Don't really, do it. it re, unless it really adds something to what you're doing, I would avoid it. I agree. I never, I don't know that I've ever been to a talk where I saw someone do a live demo of something that couldn't have other been otherwise been done by a video that compelled me in any way. Yeah. Um, maybe because I feel terrified for them because I know what that's <laughs> like, but um, it's it's never it's never been great in yeah. my opinion. I look at so I did a, a live demo once it wasn't a live coding demo but it was a live demo of firefox os running a webgl game and that's fun right yeah. and it's it's hard for that to go too wrong so you just, i guess you're right you just need to gauge the difficulty versus the potential payoff of right. an alternative right okay cool um all right so We've now like sweated through our shirt. We're thanking all that is holy that it went, it's done, it went well enough. Um, so what's next? Your talk is done. Well, so you're what's next? You're you're at the end of your talk, and uh, you might be you might be at a point where you think you want to let the audience ask questions. <laughs> And I would say don't do that because uh, more often than not, the audience doesn't actually have a question. Uh, there's just some somebody in the audience who wants to tell you why they're wrong or why you're wrong. Sure. Um, and so I don't ever, I don't offer a public forum for questions. I uh, invite everybody to come up to the front and talk to me afterwards. And we'll talk about like your specific thing or refine it or whatever. And I think that's a lot better because for one, all the people who just want to like talk to the audience, just leave because I've denied them their ability to talk to the audience. <laughs> so the only people that come up are people who are generally confused or they want to ask my opinion on something. And it lets me engage with them in a much more personal level. And sure. I get to ask like more detailed, more specific questions and give them a business <clears throat> card and like kind of connect with them a little bit better. It's also how I measure the success of a talk based on how many people actually come up to me afterwards. That is how I personally see whether or not I was successful is did I engage people enough in this talk that they wanna ask my opinion of how this applies to their situation. Uh, and so if I finish a talk and literally nobody comes up to me, I'm like, ugh, that didn't go so well. I didn't, I didn't spark anything in anybody. Um, after the talk, after after that's kind of away, um, I usually go try and find a quiet place to hang out for a half hour, 45 minutes, both both because I need to like 
emotionally recharge from the performance, um, but also to take notes. So I have a notebook that's associated with like, like the talk, uh, like just a, a notepad document or whatever. And I will kind of write out all of the, uh, the things I, I felt during the talk of how this section was going and what the room reacted to. Sometimes I'll write down like the questions that people had asked me afterwards so I can try to address them better as part of the talk. And I'll just kind of like reflect on how did it go? What went well? What did poorly? How do I make it better next time? That sort of thing. I would finish the flask in that time, by the way. I'd be so happy that everything <laughs> went so well. Um, so I think See, that I usually feel pretty good after a talk. I usually like kind of have an adrenaline high and I feel, I, I mean, I don't feel nervous at the end. I feel, I feel really like jazzed up and excited. Yeah. That was a celebratory flask, uh, situation <laughs> there. So I think that one of the, I think the the best way that we can close this out is by just sharing a few tips, you know, a few of the biggest tips that we can give to potential speakers based on our own experiences. Um, and I'll, I guess I'll go first. Um, one, the talks that I enjoy the most and the talks that I enjoy and feel most comfortable giving the most are talks that, um, that speak in more general terms about what I'm trying to describe. Um, I do have code slides in them, but I think getting getting to the main points of a given feature or a given process is much more effective than like deep diving into the code. I want to know about what you're trying to tell me about and not just the way it needs to be implemented because you can find that documentation online. Um, another thing is that I've spoken um, in sort of a, this isn't a word, but a banterly fashion about how stressful talks can be, they aren't that bad. And one thing that I quickly realize is that if I've chosen a good topic and I've written it in a way I feel comfortable giving it, the second that um, the clock starts, I sort of realize in my head that I'm probably the biggest expert on this topic in the room and that even though there's going to be a couple of people out there who might say, oh, you could use the narrow function there, or, you know, whatever crap people are going to say in their head about code. Um, I feel good that I'm the one on stage who knows what he's talking about um, and that people will have those questions. So those are the two, the, like the sort of two big tips that I can share about how I felt successful um, giving talks. I guess a third one would be, Um, I don't know how to say this right. Wear something that looks professional, but you feel you look good and comfortable in. I'm not a very vain person, but you know, if I'm if I feel like I actually like look good, um, that's one less thing that people can look at me on on stage and judge. Um, and so that's I guess another thing that helps to make me feel comfortable on stage. Um, how about you, Todd? What are a few tips that people can walk away with right now and feel like, okay, I'm going to incorporate this and this is going to make me more successful? Sure. All right. So I'm going to reiterate a few things that I think I probably slipped into our conversation. Uh, first tip, uh, don't build the talk until you're accepted. Uh, 
you don't really know what conferences are actually going to accept. Uh, so build a bunch of ideas that you feel uh, capable of delivering and get feedback on them and then pitch conferences. Build the talks that get accepted. Uh, once you've built the talk, so tip number two, once you've built the talk, uh, do it lots of times. Like it will just, it will give you the justification to spend the time that you require up front to really do a good job and think things through. And it's going to be uh, more beneficial for your time. You're going to get better at delivering the talk and you're going to get more value out of doing it uh, if you do it more than once. Um, third, be sure to prepare adequately. So before you go up on stage the first time, make sure you have rehearsed. Make sure that you have done this in actual, like out loud in front of other people, ideally, but at least to yourself and you've gone through one level of refinement. Most talks that I've seen delivered the first time could be like heavily edited. Maybe 50% of it is garbage and needs to get thrown away and like refactored. Uh, be sure you take the time to like understand what you are about to say. It's gonna help make the talk better. It's gonna make you more confident. It's gonna reduce your anxiety when you're about to get up on stage. Awesome. And now how about, how about what's your main takeaway, I guess, other than those tips? <laughs> oh, those are my takeaways. Um, uh, you're going to use the booze thing. Um, <laughs> oh, all right. My, my, I guess my takeaway is the first thing I said is make sure you understand why you want to do this. And, and think about why other people are doing it too. Like, cause everybody has their reasons behind why they're there. And so make sure you're doing it, uh, that what you're doing is for the reasons you, you're after. Like make sure that you're really going to present a talk at the conference that's gonna help you achieve the goal that you're after. It's gonna make you have a much better time and be more satisfied with whatever you do. Awesome. My takeaway, booze. No, so for me, um, the most stressful time out of all of this is the, I would say, 15 minutes before they say go. Um, because, you know, maybe I saw how awesome the person before me was. Uh, maybe, like, doubt is creeping in uh, for whatever reason. Finding something within that 15-minute window to calm me down is probably a great tip for other people too. Um, mm -hmm. So whether it's a quick shot, whether it's, you know, for me, I hadn't known about your idea of pre-slide or pre-talk slides. I think that if I put something up there that gave people a giggle or a smile or something, that would sort of put me at ease because I already had everyone on my team, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but finding something to get you by, whether maybe coffee or whatever, within that 15-minute window, I think would make the experience of giving a talk for me 50% less stressful. So I think that's what I would run with. Good points. Yep. I'm going to take those good points. Awesome. This is where you do the epic outro. Yeah. All right. This is the epic outro. All right. So today's show was all about conference speaking. Thank you so much for joining us. If you'd like me to, uh, to see me speak at a conference, uh, tough. No, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm actually uh, on my way to speak at Techorama Netherlands here uh, next week. Maybe I'm gonna release this show on Monday so that I can actually like 
do that, because if this show releases after next week, then then you missed it. Tough, tough toenails. Um, if you'd like to uh, do some conference speaking and you have further questions, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter. I'm uh, Todd H. Gardner. David Walsh blog. If you have any other ideas for the show or you'd uh, like us to talk about your topic, please let us know on, on Twitter uh, at either of us or at Script and Style. Until next time, thank you so much for watching Script and Style. I'm Todd Gardner. I'm David Walsh. Adios. Script and Style Show is recorded and produced by David Walsh and Todd Gardner. We'll see you next time on Script and Style.